You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. It's been another week of impeachment proceedings, and while some people are following the developments in the United States Senate really closely to see how it all plays out, there's one person who says, if you look at the data, the end result is already clear. In his latest piece for the Washington Post, Philip Bump writes, the day the impeachment trial began in the Senate, data was released that made clear why President Trump would never be removed from office. Philip joins us now. Uh, explain what data you're talking about uh, in this sure. piece and why it's, it should have given us a clue about what would happen uh, as this trial took place in the Senate. Well, I would say that the data sort of reflect something that everyone understood, which is that there is a really, really sharp partisan divide in the country right now uh, that influences the way that Congress approaches situations like this. So the data that were released came out uh, literally the day that the trial started. And what it is is every year Gallup, over the course of the year, polls people to get their sense of, of how they view the president. Uh, you know, they've been doing this since the 1940s. And so they released on January 21st the data for 2019. And what they found was that the gap in approval rating for President Trump between the Republicans and the Democrats uh, at 82 points was the widest they had seen on record. In other words, it had never been the case over the course of any year prior that the difference in views of the president had been as wide as views of Trump were uh, at the end of last year. Hmm. And so what that tells us, especially when you combine that with other data showing that polarization within the Senate itself is at its highest point ever, it, it reminds us that we're very... Uh, uh, fragmented politically along partisan lines, but it also shows that why this impeachment is being viewed so differently. Democrats broadly dislike Donald Trump, think that he should be removed from office. Republicans broadly like Donald Trump, think that he should stay in office. And so we see all these Republicans from red states who are responding to their electorate, who really likes Donald Trump and really wants to see him stay in office, and fervently so. And that really influences how they view the impeachment. So I I wonder if you can talk a little about the center of the political spectrum in the Senate. Of course, I don't think anyone's surprised that senators from red states are probably going to vote to acquit the president, while senators from really blue states would be more likely to vote to convict him. But what about those people who are Republican senators serving in states that have lots of other elected Democrats or vice versa. What are, are we likely to see even them uh, fall into line, into party line on this, or is it a more complicated equation for them? It is a slightly more complicated equation, and the way that a lot of them are doing that equation is by considering the actual election itself. So take, for example, Cory Gardner in Colorado. Colorado is a a, a light blue state, let's call it, right? It is, it is sort of broadly Democratic, um, but not overly so. Gardner uh, won his election there in 2014, a really strong year for Republicans nationally. Gardner's up for re-election this year, and he has indicated he, for example, was out early and said, no, he didn't want to hear witnesses in the Senate trial. His calculation seems to be that if he were to support uh, he, would, he would see less political benefit from supporting witnesses and supporting the impeachment than he does from rejecting them, because he figures Republicans are going to be the, the linchpin of the 2020 election. They're going to come out in force for Donald Trump, and he doesn't want to irritate them. Yes, Democrats are going to come out in force as well, but he doesn't think that he's going to win many Democratic votes this year around simply by 
deciding to buck the president. It's not as though Democrats are suddenly going to be like, well, now I'm going to vote for Cory Gardner just because he did this one thing. He thinks he can appeal to the Republicans by staying strong and, and towing that party line. So he's making that particular calculus. I assume others are as well. You do have some folks like Mitt Romney in Utah, which isn't a blue state. It's a red mm-hmm. state. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Mitt Romney has been uh, oppositional to President Trump, and Utah was the state that saw the biggest swing uh, in 2016 from being strongly red to slightly less red because Utahns don't like Donald Trump. And so Romney, for Romney, it's a different calculus. And I think that there's a lot of that sort of, uh, uh, sort of individualized struggle going on. What about consequences? Are we likely to see this issue and the vote that senators will take on this issue come back to haunt them either in primaries this year or in the general election? Honestly, I think one of the lingering time bombs that's sitting out there is the decision. And again, we don't know the outcome. Their vote's going to be today, but it seems likely they'll reject uh, hearing from Ambassador John Bolton, for example. Mm-hmm. If they do so, I think that that's potentially, they're sort of lighting the fuse on something that could blow up down the line. Because we know Bolton's books can come out anyway, right? These allegations are going to come out into the public sphere, and people will be asked, well, why didn't you just vote to hear this at the time? Why did you just skip over it? And so I think that that's something they're going to have to deal with, particularly given the fact that most Americans actually support calling witnesses. Now, it's important to note, Democrats want different witnesses than do Republicans. Republicans want to call Joe Biden. Democrats want to call people like John Bolton. But it is still the case that there is, in this moment, fervor for taking an action opposite of what the Senate seems likely to do. And that, I think, may be potentially problematic down the line. My guest is Philip Bump. He's a national political correspondent for The Washington Post. He wrote a piece yesterday titled, The Day the Impeachment Trial Began, Data Made Clear, how it was likely to end. We're talking about what happened this week as the Senate heard the trial or held the trial of Donald Trump, the impeachment trial of Donald Trump. We're talking about what's likely to happen now that that trial appears to be over without calling any witnesses. And we're talking about what the consequences might be down the road for senators as they cast their votes. If you want to join the conversation, give us a call. Uh, We have been airing gavel-to-gavel coverage of the impeachment hearings here on WDET. Have you been listening to that? What are your impressions of how this is going? And do you think it matters whether the Senate calls witnesses or do you think it even matters uh, whether they continue to do this uh, and hold these hearings? Do you think that uh, the outcome is a foregone conclusion and was from the beginning. As always, the number on the phones here is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and uh, we will try to work you into the conversation. Uh, AK on Twitter says, this point is obvious to anyone who's been following politics. What I wish more people thought about is what the Dems want to achieve since removal isn't going to happen. The fight in the Senate was over uh, when all the evidence uh, witnesses be, but will all the evidence, in other words, witnesses be brought before voters? Philip Bump, that's a really interesting question. Even if you don't have John Bolton or other people who might testify in this case come before the Senate, might we hear from them in the public arena? And what effect would that have? I think it's it's very likely we, we will hear from Bolton. The White House seems to be trying to potentially stop the release of his book or, or have it tailored down, but he can still speak publicly if he, if he chooses to do so. So we probably will hear from him. You know, and a lot of the other evidence has been in the public sphere since November when we had these, these uh, 
uh, witnesses come forward and, and offer their testimony. I mean, I don't think we're going to hear, for example, from Acting White House Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney, who, uh, you know, had one press conference in October where he sort of gave the game away and has, hasn't been heard from since, uh, I think, at, at uh, President Trump's uh, wishes. Hmm. Uh, so all this evidence is already out there. I mean, the, quite frankly, one of the questions that I have as a reporter is the extent to which people are actually paying attention and, and digesting it. It seems to be pretty clearly the case that even some of the senators were sort of not really familiar with a lot of the evidence coming into the trial, and I'm not sure how that, uh, if that's changed to any significant extent uh, for some of them over the course of the trial. As the election uh, uh, nears, a lot of people, I think, are going to have fatigue with this whole issue just as they develop fatigue over Russia. Now, you know, one can argue whether or not Donald Trump deserves to be removed from office and so on and so forth. I think it's clearly the case this is an important issue and one worthy of consideration. It's just because Donald Trump, and, you know, we've seen this since the 2016 campaign, since there are so many things that, that arise with him that are unusual and at times uh, 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 challenged by the Democrats in, in strong terms, I'm curious as to whether or not people just sort of like, ah, here we go again with, you know, this, this whole controversy over Donald Trump and, and, you know, let it flow under the bridge. Mm. I also would like you to talk a little about the narrative arc of this story and how it went from the initial understanding about what had happened here and how big a deal it seemed to the point now where not just members of the Senate seem at peace with what happened and and uh, resigned to the idea that they're going to move on, but that so much of the American public seems to not have dug in on this and realized the gravity of what what we're talking about. Uh, the, some of the some of the speeches on the Senate floor about how close this behavior, whether you th- support the president or not, comes to the very things that the authors of the Constitution were concerned about in in the executive branch. Um, where did Democrats go wrong in selling that narrative effectively to Americans? There's a quote I come back to often from John Dean, who famously flipped on Richard Nixon and helped contribute to his eventual resignation. Uh, he was speaking to Rolling Stone in the summer of 2018, and he said that if Richard Nixon had had a Fox News, he probably wouldn't have had to resign to the presidency. Mm-hmm. And essentially what happened is there's, uh, you know, there is an entire ecosystem dedicated to supporting President Trump to downplaying negative aspects of his presidency and to amplifying positive aspects of his presidency. And it is, you know, Fox News is the most watched network uh, among conservatives and among Republicans. It is uh, very fervently, uh, particularly in its opinion side, pro-Trump. It aired very little of the impeachment trial itself uh, in prime time, almost, you know, I think in the first day of the trial it aired something like 30 seconds of live footage of it. That was usually going into or coming out of commercials. Uh, and that has played a, a big role. So the Democrats, uh, you know, these, these questions emerged. And it's important to remember, too, that the questions which emerged were not questions from Democratic members of the House. There are, there are people who worked within the administration that, you know, started blowing the whistle and, and raising questions about what had happened. Uh, the Democrats, you know, elevated this, certainly, in, 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 as part of an effort to try and, you know, target President Trump's actions. Uh, but it's very quickly framed in partisan terms. There was this morning, Ezra Klein from Vox, uh, shared some research uh, on Twitter 
that looked at how people respond to controversial political acts, and people tend to band together in social spheres mm. and you know amplify the same arguments as the people that they know because it is just psychologically easier to do so. And so one of the effects that we saw is very quickly there developed uh, this this way of rationalizing what it was that Trump had done that, that percolated out through conservative media, had a big audience already for it, and people sort of surrounded it. And then people are, uh, Donald Trump did a very good job from the outset of his campaign of positioning it was himself against the D.C. elites and the media. And so the D.C. elites and the media were saying, hey, there are questions about what Donald Trump did, and what that served to do in part also was say, oh, here they go again, they're attacking Trump, let's rally around our president. So all of those factors combined made this and makes essentially any fight uh, uphill for uh, Donald Trump's opponents. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook or Twitter and put comments there, and we'll try to work you into the conversation. Let's go to Tom in northwest Detroit. Tom, welcome to the show. Yeah, yeah, good morning to both of you. You know, it's you know, like you mentioned earlier in the uh, your, your discussion, it's a foregone conclusion that they're not going to convict Trump. Just as um, what's it, McConnell said, and I paraphrase, it's my duty to make sure that President Obama is a one-term president. He's going to be. I mean, he said it before the trial even started. You know that. You know, like basically, why even have this thing? Mm-hmm. And I think what what it is, it's to me. I'm glad that uh, Nancy Pelosi and the Democratic Party decided to go through this because it shows what the uh, powers in, in terms of, you know, getting to this point where we are now, what, what they, they've done nothing illegal, immoral, or fattening in terms of bringing these charges against Trump and having his trial in the Senate. Hmm. And, I mean, it just shows you the process of government and how it works. So, so, Tom, do you think this was worth doing? Have you been paying attention to it? Have you been listening to the coverage? To be honest about it, I have a life. And, you know, <laughs> I, you know this, uh, this whole thing, it, it, it's just too much to try and sit down there and, and so, soak up. So, I mean, I went, I, I went out and I swam my mile a day and, you know, did my other things, and I would catch little snippets and what have you. But, you know, I knew from the jump street that they were they're not going to convict Trump. And, I mean, the four, uh, you know, Republicans, uh, Romney's kind of like the head of them, who are, like, say, on the fence right now, they're going to side with the party. They're not going to vote against Trump. Hmm. And probably maybe about the only thing they might do that's decent is vote to have witnesses come in. Yeah, I, I, I think the prospect of that is increasingly slim as well, Tom. I, I really appreciate the call uh, and the comments. Let's go to Rhonda in Ypsilanti. Rhonda, what's on your mind? You there, Rhonda? I, hey. I have, yeah, I'm here. Can you hear me? I can. Yes, go ahead. Okay, great. I have been keeping watch on it, and I do, too, have a life, though. Um, <laughs> but I think that the, the question that I have is that it's already it's been really clear that the Republicans have this, like, uneasy tolerance of his behavior because they're trying to maintain power. But the question becomes, when they acquit him, because we know that they're going to, how do they put that genie back in the bottle? Because we know he's going to take that to mean he has carte blanche to do whatever he wants. Mm. And that's, that's when things are going to get really dangerous. Mm. And that's what concerns me. Rhonda, I appreciate the call and, and that, that point. 
Philip Bump, uh, that brings us to the, I guess, the, the, the larger context of what's going on here, which is that there have always been constitutional restraints on the executive branch and political restraints on how that branch can act. Is Donald Trump rewriting the rules for that, in, in effect, by doing what he did and then cowing the Congress into going along with it? Yeah, I mean, there's a uh, there's a great anecdote. Chris Hayes wrote a book a couple of years ago called The Twilight of the Elites, and he tells this story about some college basketball team, I forget which, that essentially discovered in the pre-shot clock era uh, that they could just hold the ball forever and win games. And it drove everyone bananas, but it wasn't against the rules, and so they did it, and then they finally had to institute a shot clock. Donald Trump has discovered that a lot of the sort of informal niceties of American politics just totally fall away if you ignore them. You know, part of this is that he's completely unconcerned about those norms. He understands that he has more power if he ignores them. Uh, but what we've seen is a combination both of the toothlessness of a lot of the norms uh, that we expect presidents to uphold, uh, combined with this sort of partisan fervor for President Trump and partisanship broadly in American politics. And those two things allow him a lot of latitude that we wouldn't have expected a president to be able to have. It's important to remember, this whole Ukraine thing started with, you know, he had this telephone call with the Ukrainian president on uh, July 25th, literally the day after Robert Mueller presented before Congress the findings of the Russia investigation, in which Trump wasn't exonerated, but Trump saw it as an exoneration. The next day he gets on the phone with Zelensky, and he actually makes reference to Mueller and the Russia probe and, you know, what he wants Zelensky to do. Uh, I think, you know, one of the arguments that the Democrats made was, look, if we don't remove him from office, he's going to keep doing this stuff, and he's going to set, if he's further going to set a precedent, which is problematic for all presidents down the line. I think there's certainly some validity to that. You know, that said, you know, I, I'm not entirely sure where we go next in terms of what President Trump feels empowered to do, simply because he's felt empowered to do what he's done so far, right? It's not as though, you know, I'm not even sure that he recognizes that these things are things that he ought not to be doing just by virtue of his position. So uh, I, I'm curious to see if something else emerges that's more dramatic, but it's pretty hard to get more dramatic than where we are now. I also think there are some real questions about the separation between the president's personal political interest and the interest of the nation, which, of course, every president has to struggle with making decisions that respect the boundaries that are set up for those two things. But but here in particular, we've seen Alan Dershowitz, one of the president's lawyers, argue that the president's motive was not corrupt because it partially involved the national interest, which is kind of a novel argument to, to make. It's a novel constitutional argument. But again, it, it pushes the bounds of what we have come to expect in terms of the way that the, the, the executive branch is rendered and restrained. Yes, that's true. So we, we sort of had an expectation of American presidents that they would win election, then they would try and you know, reach out to both sides of the island and serve as a president for everyone, that, that presidents would hold themselves in check and you know, try and uphold a high ethical standard, that they would treat uh, the Supreme Court and Congress as co-equal uh, governors of the, of, of the United States, that, that all of these sort of expectations, a lot of which are rooted in a deep familiarity with the American political system, which you know, every president to this point has had because they came through the world of politics, we had these expectations that that's what a president would do. Donald Trump very quickly showed that's not how he intended to be president. Again, in part, I think, because you know he wasn't part of the culture of American politics before he became president. 
uh, and that has served him to his great advantage. Uh, I think, you know, Republicans as well, when you combine that with his entire message, which, as I said earlier, was basically he was going to go and punch in the face everyone who the conservatives didn't like, uh, which he has done as often as he, as he can, uh, that has really endeared him to a lot of conservatives who don't like D.C., who don't care about political niceties, who don't care about the norms of politics, uh, and are happy to have someone who's up there, you know, telling, you know, saying obnoxious things about Chuck Schumer and then Adam Schiff, right? They like that. Uh, you know, and politics is rooted in what people like more than it is rooted in concern for, you know, the long-term stability of, you know, the norms of the United States government. Let's go to Robert in Birmingham. Robert, welcome to the show. Good morning, Stephen. How are you doing today? Good. How are you? Not bad. Not bad. Uh, this is a, going to be a perfect example of party over country. Um, Donald Trump has basically hijacked the Republican Party. He's got uh, all his uh, Mitch McConnell and the rest of his crew in line to do whatever they need to do to keep him there. Um, and it's just going to be a, a, a travesty for the entire country if this happens. And all I can say is, remember in November. I think the, <laughs> the Republicans are going to pay dearly for this, hmm. um, for not allowing witnesses to come. When you have 75% of the country asking, the public asking, maybe we should listen to some of these people that came up, you know, with these John Bolton and all these people. To, to get the, all the facts out there to make a clear decision, they're just going to make a decision because we're Republicans and this is what we want to do. This mm-hmm. is how it's going to be. You yeah. know, we're in power. That's it. Robert, take I, it or leave it. I really appreciate the call. Philip, uh, there, there is kind of a separate question about what is going on inside the Republican Party and the push and pull over Donald Trump and his leadership. Do you hear much from Republicans who are worried about that? Do you hear much from Republicans who say, I've got to do this because there is no way to fight against uh, this president and, and keep your job, but I don't feel like this is the, the right direction for this party to go into? Yeah, no, I, there, are, there are, I think, a lot of Republicans, even currently serving Republicans, who quietly hold that view. Uh, but there's a, there's a great example that we have in this moment of, of these motivations is uh, uh, Tennessee Senator Lamar Alexander, who last night said, you know, he's going to announce his decision on whether or not to call witnesses. And there was a lot of, you know, curiosity. What, what was he going to do? Was he going to, was he going to side in favor of calling witnesses, or was he going to be in opposition to them? Tim Alberta, who's a great reporter at Politico, mm-hmm basically predicted where Alexander was going to go by saying, people are saying, yes, Alexander is retiring at the end of his term, but he still is reliant for his future job prospects, for his future personal mental health. He is reliant upon uh, leaving his office in the good graces of President Trump and the Republican Party simply because Donald Trump is so, uh, he, he so saturates uh, the Republican establishment now that there is so much investment in him that his base is so strong and so vocal that Lamar Alexander, even once he leaves office, is going to be somewhat beholden to how people feel about President Trump. He said that before Alexander announced what he was going to do, and Alexander, sure enough, announced, you know, he said, I, I think that what, I think Donald Trump did it, but I don't think he should be removed from office, and I don't think we need to hear more witnesses. It was a very good distillation. Even someone who isn't going to be part of the actual voting Senate still feels as though he must be beholden to, you know, maybe he has. Obviously, removal is a big step, and so maybe there are other issues there. But it was a good example of how this is so pervasive, even outside of elected government, 
that Republicans, even if they are not in the Senate, even if they're not in the House, can pay a price for simply opposing Donald Trump uh, in their in their personal lives or or in their professional lives. Mm. Again, Robert, thanks very much for the call. Let's go to Ed in Detroit. Ed, welcome to the show. As the night follows the day, a Democrat will be president of the United States, you know, this year, four years from now, eight years from now, who knows. If Donald Trump successfully wipes away the informal and understood limitations on a president, those that are not grounded in the Constitution, but grounded in tradition, that that future Democratic president may say, Donald Trump has set a precedent. I don't have to follow these norms that people prior to Trump follow. They're merely a choice that I can make. I choose not to follow them. Uh, It will put the Congress and the American people in a position to decide, what do we do? Now, we have an experience well, before my lifetime, but within our historic lifetime, we had a precedent that a president serves two terms. Mr. Roosevelt broke that precedent mm-hmm. and was, was, in fact, elected to four terms. Um, there was a, an agreement, at least on the middle to right side of our political spectrum, that we need to entrench in the Constitution the two-term limits. Given our political, hyper-political state, I'm not sure the system can correct itself the way the system dealt with the two-term precedent yeah. problem. Ed, Ed, I think— And we— Yeah, go ahead. I'll listen on the radio. Yeah, Ed, I think that's a really great point. And, uh, Philip, there, there, there have been lots of times in U.S. history where— the bounds of tradition or of the law have been stretched. My analogy for that is that the republic is kind of like a rubber band and that uh, every once in a while you have somebody who wants to pull that rubber band a little more taut than somebody else, but that the expectation is that it will come back to its original shape, that it will at some point uh, return to a norm I think a lot of people are concerned that that this presidency and the things that have come up in this presidency maybe are threatening to snap that rubber band and that uh, we can't come back to some norm. Is that is that a reasonable reaction to what we're seeing? Yeah, I think I think it's a very reasonable reaction, especially because we keep seeing that rubber band being stretched further and further. I mean, there are a couple things I'd say. The first is that uh, uh, the caller is absolutely right that Democrats, a Democratic president, will not be super eager to reel back in the power of the presidency simply because he'll be president. Uh, you know, that's I, for example, daily press briefings. Is that something that's gone forever? Or we'll, we'll see. Uh, it depends on who becomes president next. Uh, I will say though that. While he's correct that after FDR, for example, there was a constitutional amendment after all of the Nixon, uh, uh, you know, the Watergate scandal and his resignation, there was a series of reforms that were passed, some of which are, are still with us and have come up again in the context of Trump, aimed at trying to curtail what the president is able to do. But one thing that I'll point to that is toxic in its own way, uh, but is nonetheless something that might be informative, is look at what's happened in states recently as... Uh, there have been new governors elected. So, for example, I think it was in North Carolina and also in Wisconsin, 
after a Republican legislature and a Republican governor served together, once the Republican governors lost and a Democrat was coming in, the legislatures very quickly moved to limit the power of the, the governorship uh, with the approval of the outgoing president. So it may be the case that uh, one of the ways that we end up with better restrictions, better legal restrictions on the presidency is simply because Republicans in Congress will want to limit the presidency once they know it's not going to be a Republican president anymore. Is that the way the system should work? No. Is it a way of of considering how there may actually be new restrictions? Potentially. Mm. Philip Bump, national political correspondent for The Washington Post. It was great to have you here with us on Detroit Today. Up next, we are going to talk about the fact that Brexit Day is here. And what does that mean for us here in Michigan? Stay with us on Detroit Today.